Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. that chases us down, that fights until we're found, that leaves the 99, that picture from the story in Luke and Matthew of the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to seek out for the one that is lost. The one that kicks down just about any wall, breaks down any lie, and climbs just about any mountain for us. The song says it's reckless. Why reckless? Not because God is reckless, but because the love seems reckless, so sacrificial, so willing to give it all for us. Why do we need that kind of love? Why do we cry out for that kind of love? But for temptation, the issue of temptation, which we deal with every single day, the issue of sin, the power of temptation. You know, Oscar Wilde said that I can resist anything, except temptation. Wise man, right? There's a saying in many addiction recovery programs that say, if you keep going to the barber shop, eventually you're going to get a haircut. Which means whatever your vice is, if you keep going to the places where that vice is available, whether it's at pornography sites or at the gambling table or at the bar, eventually we will fall to temptation. And even if we get away from those things, the reality is we are attracted to things that have value, like gold. And we're most attracted or longing for things that are forbidden. That's the nature of us. And the goal of temptation is simply to take us down, to tear us out, to destroy. As the enemy came, we're told, Jesus even said, he came to kill, to steal, right? To destroy. That's the goal of temptation. And I want you to look at a story, you may have a seat before we start, of one man's battle against temptation. It takes a lot of courage for Shane to share his story, doesn't it? And you're going to get to see part two next week. Yes, this is a two-part series. You have to be here next week to get the whole story. But the idea of Shane sharing out loud his journey with temptation, the vulnerability that takes, means that he believes something great about God's love, something powerful about God's love. And as we look at the story today, we we saw, we heard the story of David himself falling into temptation. I think it's a time when we can all connect with the reality that temptation is something we all deal with and how we deal with it might be different from one another, but we'll all get there at some point, varying degrees, of course. And as we look at the story of David, a story that connects most with mine, uh, some of you don't know me, but most of you do, and you know my story. You know that I, too, started my current relationship, my marriage to my husband, through an adulterous relationship. I, too, sinned and fell to temptation. And the only reason I can stand here and tell you that is because I believe in the grace that God has given me. And the reason we can look at David's story is because it's through these stories, through my story, through Shane's story, through your story, that we can encourage others to perhaps 
see the damage it creates and maybe take a different way, right? We're going to look at the story of David and see that there's a pattern to temptation. We, saw the, we know about the power of temptation. We know the goal of temptation, but we're going to look at the pattern of temptation. And the best picture I had as I was planning for today was this idea of parachuting. Anybody done parachuting? Jump off a plane? Are oh, you crazy people? Amazing. There's only but one goal when you parachute, right? When you jump off the plane. One is you're a thrill seeker. You're going for a thrill. Agreed? For those of you who have done it. The other is you're going straight to the ground. There's no way around it. The minute you jump off that plane, you're going one way. That's it. It's a one-way route. Temptation is the same. It offers us a thrill, and it only goes one way, down. But thankfully, our Lord gives us ways out along the way, which is really quite remarkable, God's grace, that no matter where we are on the path of temptation and sin, All along the way, there are exit routes or safety mechanisms and equipment that we could use to get ourselves out of the ultimate goal of temptation. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the pattern, and we're going to see how God provides for us a way out all along the way. The first thing we see that in this story is that the pattern of temptation is the same pattern in pretty much every story in the Bible of moral failure. And it goes along with even perhaps our own stories of moral failure, when we may have, when we fall to sin. It's the same with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were told by God, don't eat from the the tree of life, knowledge of life and evil. And they chose to take. The very first thing we're told when we read Genesis 1 is that Eve saw. She saw the fruit. She looked at it. And then the next thing we hear is that she desired it. It looked good. It looked good to eat. The next thing she did is she took from from the tree. And the next thing we know is there's destruction, shame. They hide. They hide from God. And then there's consequences. That pattern is repeated in the stories of Scripture. You see that Abram and Sarah, their, their goal, their promise to God is that they would one way be a huge nation. But they were older people, and they just didn't believe, you know, they'd lost faith that God would one day fulfill that promise. So what did they do? Sarah comes up with a plan. He gives to Abraham his, um, his slave, and he says, she says to him, have, have relations with her. Maybe I will be blessed through her. What did they do? They, she sees Hagar. She desires to have these children. She takes this woman so that her goal would be fulfilled, and what comes out of it is shame and loss and destruction. That theme is seen in the Bible over and over again, and we'll see it in Dave's story today. The name David means beloved. And the name Bathsheba means oath. The beloved one, the love by God, broke an oath. And we see in the story, that's what temptation causes us to do. The first thing we know is that David remained in Jerusalem. This is a season when uh, they would go out to war against their enemies. The best time to fight. You're not dealing with heat or dealing with uh, cold. In the spring, that's when they would go do their campaigns. But this time, David decided to stay back, to stay in the castle. And one night, he's having a sleepless night, and he goes around the castle roof. And if, you, um, if you've been to Israel, you know that the city of David, his castle was higher. All the homes were just below it, so he could see the roofs of other homes. And from his roof, he sees a woman. He sees her. The very first step of temptation is for us to like become aware of it. It comes before us. 
And there, that is almost like standing at the edge of the plane when you're about to uh, be told to jump off as, as a skydiver does. And you see the ground, you see where you're headed. And that's a really good moment to make a decision not to jump, right? To go, you know what, this is kind of crazy. Uh, this parachute could fail, things could happen, and I don't have wings. There's no way I'm going to be able to get out of this situation if I jump. Unless my equipment works perfectly, I, no matter how hard I try, I cannot flap my arms hard enough, I'm not going to be able to fly, so there's a moment there to make a decision. When we see, when the very first temptation comes at us, that's a great moment to go, I'm not jumping. I'm not jumping. I'm going to make another choice. David isolates himself. There's no one there to hold him accountable. No one to say, David, what you're looking at is going to lead you in the wrong direction. So there in isolation, he takes the next step. You see, um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this amazing statement, and it, you have it on your uh, bulletin so you can rip it out and put it somewhere in the mirror so you remind yourself not to isolate to the point where no one can help you make the decision not to jump. Listen to what it says. Actually, can we read it together? Sin demands that you have a man by himself. It withdraws from him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. We are weakest when we are isolated. But sometimes we are also weakest when we are gathered with the wrong people. Because using the skydiving illustration again, if you're standing on the edge of that plane, you're going, I'm not going to jump. This is not such a good idea. You've got a whole bunch of buddies who also came with you. They want to jump. And they're going, come on, jump. It's a big, it's so much fun. You're going to be fine. I checked that parachute. Don't worry. I've been there. I come back a thousand times. Look how safe I am. You can do it. Isn't it true that the mob mentality can also lead us to jump, to take that step? So it's not just don't isolate. If you're together with people, you have to choose who to be with, who those people will be to help you make the decision not to jump. So isolating along with people who believe exactly as you do, that's also isolating because you're all believing the same thing and you're going to head all of yourselves down the wrong path, right? So that's something we have to do. Our, if our eyes are wondering, we need more than just ourselves or our buddies who want to do the same thing. Same thing. And for this, I feel like it's this idea of when you, when you skydive, one of the equipments that God gives you, uh, that you use, skydivers, you know this, is you wear goggles because you don't want some fly coming into your eye on the way down. You know what I'm saying? It's going to feel like a rock. But the goggles kind of protect you. And I feel like the goggles that God gives us as a way out of this is his word. His word. Because with this word, we might see further, see more than what we're looking in front of us. We might see like he sees and see the potential damage that we're going to experience. And his word is the one that helps us. First Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can endure it. Jesus dealt with temptation. How did he fight it? He fought it with God's word. God's word were the goggles he used to save himself from saying yes to temptation. But there was a point where we go past that. We see it. We don't have the courage or the protection or whatever it might be to fight against it. So we take the next step. And David does. He sees the woman is beautiful. He lingers long enough to actually examine her and make a decision that she's beautiful. And that, that's important for us because when we see 
that which tempt us, that the worst thing we can do is stay there staring. Because as we stare, our hearts are being connected to what we see. Our deep desires are being awakened. If, if seeing is like a spark, staying and staring becomes essentially our desires become wood for that fire and it starts burning even further. Every single one of us has desires. All of us have something we want. All of us have something we need. And while the enemy doesn't know your desire, he certainly knows how to test for it, right? He certainly knows. It's almost like a shoe salesman, you know? He's like, do you like these shoes? Oh, you don't like those? That's too high heels? Oh, how about these? I'll try this one. Oh, how about the boots? Come on, those keep you warm in the summer. Don't like those? I got a better one. You want the expensive ones? Sure, I got those in the back. Let me get them. He is constantly checking out where is your desire matching with his intention so that he can take us further down. When our desires are not in check, when we're not aware of our desires, they get matched with what we see and we take the next step. I know from my own self, when my journey in this whole situation was that I saw that Jim was a kind man, a generous man, a successful man. He cared for me and and that, that was my first vision of him. But then the next thing that happened was my heart, my desire started to grow. I grew up when my father left when he was a year old, but before I was a year old. And I grew up without a father. And my mom, amazing mother, she raised seven kids on herself, total rock star. But let's face it, I was number six. And by then, she had little time and energy for me. And I was a needy kid. I wanted hugs all the time and kisses. And she's like, oh, my gosh, you're like so big. Also, you know, you're like stuck to me all the time. So I had this deep desire for my heart to be seen, to be loved, to be adored, really, to be hugged. And, and while maybe my first husband did that for me, he became abusive, and I had to leave that relationship. And then I remarried again, and that first husband also saw me as well, but then his depression became all-consuming, and then I lost that care as well, and so I divorced him. Now, you're really liking me now, right? This is... You can see my desires, how it took me down these paths where I kept making mistake after mistake. And then here comes Jim. He cares for me. He, and all of a sudden, that desire to be seen is engaged, and it was intoxicating. Hard to say no. And that's what happened to David. He sees this beautiful woman. He's by himself. Not that he doesn't have wives. He already has multiple. And not that the Bible condones that, but that David did it, and still it was not enough. He sees this woman. And he sees that she's beautiful, and he takes the next step. Romans 7 reminds us, there is not a single one of us that at, point, at one point or another will not do the thing that we don't want to do. We will, we will somehow, and in, as much as we try to be a good person, we will cross the line at some point or another in some way. I just put out there my junk, and you might be like, oh my goodness, that woman did all that stuff. But I know for a fact that you have your junk too. I know for a fact the scripture says this. This is what Paul says. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Anybody with me? Can we say an amen? Which means that is true. I struggle too. We tend to do the thing that we're not supposed to do. And when we are distracted, When our eyes are fixed on the wrong thing, when we're not fixed on God, but we are fixed on the things that were tempting us, we are weakest at that point. What is your heart longing for? 
Do you even know what the deepest desire of your heart is? That when the temptation comes, it's going to get fired up and take you down the wrong path. And we need to know that desire because if we know it, we know to ask God to help us fill it versus anything else. And if you don't know it, do like David in Psalm 139. He asked God to search. He says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me to the way of everlasting. Lead me away from where my desires might take me in the wrong direction. Lead me towards life, towards good, towards your ways, not my ways. And so if you don't know, you can simply have a moment of prayer with the Lord and say, God, what are the desires of my heart? that can start a nice big fire if I don't let you fill them, right? Then David takes the next step. And, you know, in this idea of, of skydiving, since I'm, you know, I'm not against skydiving, by the way. I'm just, it's just a really good analogy, all right, for those of you who did it. But when it comes to skydiving, one of the things, equipment that you should take with you is an altimeter. Why? Because it tells you how high you are and where you're headed. Now, these are, this is a piece of equipment that tells the truth all the time. In other words, it tells you you're at 13,000 feet, you're now at 12,000 feet, you're now at 11,000 feet, and it lets you know you're going down. There's no, like, 11,000 feet, oh, now you're at 1150. Or maybe a little heat cloud might take you for a second, but you're still going down eventually. And without that piece of equipment, you might delude yourself to think, that's way down there. I'm so far. I don't need to pull up my parachute. I'm good up here, right? We need that equipment. And here's what God gives us as the altimeter himself. He's the one who's going to help us through that journey, right? If we ask him, God, let me see things the way you see it. What is the reality of my situation? He will help us see it. If we don't pay attention to that, we take the next step is that we take. And David took. He sends his men to go and get this woman, and they bring her to him. And what's amazing to me is these guys, they're David's servants. You know, this is not their accountability partner. This is not David's boss. And, and they have the courage to go, uh, David, uh, she's Bathsheba. She is a wife to Uriah. Uh, David, this is like one of your most esteemed soldiers. Uh, just in case you didn't know this because you didn't see that, uh, she is a married woman, but David still takes. And once we attach our eyes, what we see, to our desires, it's very easy to go to the next step, which is simply to take. To take that which is not ours, to take that which will bring destruction. That's the next step. And while David knew this, he still went forward. And what happens is consequences begin. The minute we jump off the plane, consequences are beginning to pile up. We might be blind to them. We might ignore them. But they're happening. They're building up. And just because right away they're not hitting us, that does not mean they will eventually. It's kind of like living a lavish life on credit. You might live a few months. You might live a year. But sooner or later, those bills are coming. And you're going to have a consequence. It's the same thing. And once we take, we begin the journey towards those consequences. And at that point, once we get there, I remember the moment that I, that I took the next step in my relationship with Jim. Once I did that, there was no saving myself. There's no saving myself. Again, this idea of parachuting, there's a point in this journey that you're headed down no matter what. Gravity's doing its job. And unless you have a parachute, which, by the way, doesn't come with your body when you're born. It's something that's given to you, you put on. Unless you have a parachute, you're going to be a splat at the bottom of this land. And essentially, what is our parachute? 
but our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus himself who came to give us an idea and understanding of sin in such a way that we would recognize our need for him. You know, the most dangerous words I hear people say is, I don't need Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. I live a moral life. If you're too good for Jesus, then you're probably going down this this, uh, drop without a parachute. And I tell you, sooner or later, you're going to face the reality you need him. You might get to that because you suffer. You might get to there because you have a moral failure. You might get to that because you get so over your head, you can't figure out a way out. But Jesus is always right there, ready to go. You just got to pull that thing and go, Jesus, I need you. We got to get to that place where we say, I need him. And he is that parachute. He comes to save us. He came to save us. He came to give it all to us, all for us. And then, unfortunately, the reality of consequences continue. Even though Jesus saves us, there's still consequences. You know, despite the fact that God has given me amazing grace, that I became a believer after Jim and I got married, you know, that doesn't mean consequences go out the window. Consequences still exist. So how do we deal with those? The reality of our, our temptations and where they take us is when we go deep enough, we know we're going to deal with some things. How do we deal with that? And sure enough, David dealt with consequences, and his, his situation got more complicated because once he realized he was in trouble, once he realized that he had taken something that did not belong to him, once he realized Bathsheba was pregnant, he tried to hide it. Isn't that like us, right? We try to go, well, let me like solve the problem by doing this, and be, while we do that, our desires and our temptations go even deeper, and we do worse things. What does David do? He sends Uriah to the front line. By the way, he sends Uriah with the instructions to be sent to the front line, and Uriah dies in the battlefield. And while he thinks, well, I didn't kill him, I just sent him to the battlefield. He's a warrior. That's what happens. At the end of the day, God even reminds Uriah, you killed Uriah by sending him to the front line. In our sin, we tend to pile it up by trying to cover it up. And we shouldn't do that because the minute we try to cover it, more damage occurs. There's going to be consequences. And the sooner we know, the sooner we accept those consequences and stop the activity, the quicker we get out of the situation. If we stay and try to pile up those consequences, like, well, they're not that big a deal, not a big a deal, it just gets bigger. If we keep charging that credit card, the bill gets bigger. That's the reality, right? And David's bill got bigger. Are you minimizing the consequences of your actions? Whatever situation you're in, are you looking and going, well, it's not so bad. Like Shane was saying, well, it's not hurting anybody. It's, it's, just, it's just me and my time here on the computer. How could that hurt anybody? Are you minimizing them? Because if you are, then there's a chance you will continue to destroy. There's a man named Cornelius Platinga. He wrote a wonderful book about sin. And he said these words. He said, sin is a form of self-abuse. Would you agree with that? It's a form of self-abuse because ultimately we're doing, at minimum, damage to ourselves. And we enter ourselves into more and more shame. You are getting so depressed this morning, aren't you? (laughs) There's hope. There's hope. Hang in there. I love this little story I read recently that there's a, there was a summer camp of kids who went uh, camping, and the instructor, this is a Christian camp, and the instructor was telling the kids, 
Look at all the beauty around us, all these plants and all these trees and the mountains. All of this was created by God, and it's all good and beautiful to look at. Look at. And one of the kids were like, okay, if God had good plants for everything he created, why did he create poison ivy? And of course, the instructor was like, oh, oh you know, before he could answer it, another kid said, well, because God wanted us to know there are certain things we should not touch. There are certain things that are not good for us. Yes, we can do anything, but at the end of the day, not everything is beneficial, as Paul said. Some things will cause us problems, and we cannot minimize their impact. Why I share with you my story so openly is because I want to call it for what it is. I don't want to call it like, well, you know, we were in the sweet relief. No, I got to call it for what it is. It was an affair. It was wrong. You have to look at your situation and look at it for what it is. Only then are you ready to receive the grace that God has to give you. Because while you're minimizing it, while you'll get grace for the part you admit, the part you don't admit, well, how can you get grace for it? You haven't even exposed it for God to care for it. God wants to give you grace for all of it, not just some of it. That's what Jesus came to do. And I love the warning from Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, if you think you're standing firm, let's read that part, last part together. Be careful that you do not fall. If the minute you think, I'm okay, I got this, I'm not doing anything bad, this is not a big deal, it's not hurting anyone, it's not going to have consequences, you're already in trouble. And you need some people to come around and help you. And I think that's the the last piece of equipment that a a good uh, person who's going to go skydiving will have. And it's a piece of equipment known as the AAD, the Automatic Activation Device. You guys ever put one of those on? What that does is if you're going down and you're ignoring your altimeter, you're ignoring your eyesight, that you're headed towards the ground, you can see little people moving around already, you can see almost a rose, you can make that out over there on the bushes with thorns, and you're still going, I'm fine, I don't need to pull that parachute. The automatic device, you know what it does? It pulls that parachute before you even think about doing it. It does it for you so that you don't splat on the ground. What is our automatic activated machine, our community. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to stand with us and hold us accountable. If you don't have that community around you, people who really care for you, who like you want to get to that place where you're not continuous to make those mistakes, you've got to have peeps around you that care and are willing to speak truth to you, are willing to maybe challenge you and say things you don't want to hear so that that parachute kicks in before you hit the ground, right? That's what we want. But listen, David, he was the beloved, the one after God's own heart. If he can make this big of a mistake, which one of us thinks we won't make it ourselves? The chances are any one of us could. I remember when, when I was um, going back to work for Jim, my girlfriend Nancy, she said to me, Inez, don't go back to work for him. Now you're a divorced woman. I know you guys get along. You might end up in a relationship. And I remember saying to her, how dare you? How could you say that? I would never do such a thing. I was so sure I would never step across that line. And that was the beginning of my own downfall. Because here, God gave me someone who was helping me not go down that path, but I completely ignored her. Are you ignoring the community around you, your friends, who might be speaking some truth to you, and you're saying, I don't want to hear it? If David could go through that, we can too. 
I love Hebrews 4 because it reminds us that God sees everything. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees it all. God sees it all. And the beauty of it is he's not repulsed by you. He is repulsed by sin. He is repulsed by the enemy's attempt to destroy his creation. You are God's creation. Masterpieces created for a purpose. And the enemy wants to shatter you. And God looks at your situation and he sees the enemy's attempt and he wants to stop that. That is God's. He doesn't watch over us so he can punish us. He watches over us so that he can save us. And he does it through his son. I love this uh, statement again from Cornelius. He says, human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to sin its way. God's grace is more persistent than whatever temptation you have before you. If we think of it as the shoe salesman, there he is trying to sell you a pair of shoes and God's over here going, I got something better. We got to shift from the desires of this world to the desire for something greater. God is pursuing after you every single day. As Paul says, at every turn when we are tempted, God provides a way out. He always does. Now, I know this is not a popular message or a popular thing to talk about, but really, I mean, did we want to come to church and recognize that we all fall to temptation? But you know, if we don't do that, if we don't face sin for what it is and temptation for what it is, how can we embrace grace for what it is? If we minimize sin, we minimize grace. If we minimize our brokenness, we cheapen the work that Jesus did on the cross. He came to die for all of it, but really all of it, not the minimized version of our minds, but all of the sin that might be in us, that we might live in grace. And next week, we're going to look at David's turn. When he recognizes his own brokenness, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. When he recognizes his own brokenness, and he turns to God, while he wasn't the one to admit it, Nathan comes to him, and Nathan is the one who has to confront him. David still does the right thing. He actually repents. In fact, let me just give you a preview next week from 2 Samuel 12. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. You're not going to hit the ground, David. You're not going to die. The Lord has taken away your sin. This is in the Old Testament, pre-Jesus. You see how God's plan to redeem us from our sin has been there from the beginning. His desire that we would have life to the fullest. I guarantee you next week you're going to like the sermon a lot better because it's going to be about God's grace and God's goodness, right? But you would not appreciate it if you did not hear this side of the story today. So you got to come next week. And as we get prepared for communion and for all the response stations here at the chapel, I love that every single one of these is a reminder of what God has done for us. At the cross, we're reminded, of course, that our sin, whatever we have fallen into, is not going to be the ultimate power over you. We can come to that cross and say, that has no power. Jesus has already paid the price. Therefore, I can live in freedom. 
And so there, any moment, we can reach out for that parachute and say, Jesus, we need you. We accept your forgiveness, and we live out a life of freedom. We light candles of hope because life is difficult and challenging. Our desires are probably still not fulfilled. And we have deep desires in our heart, and we're reminding ourselves our hope comes from him and him alone. We have the prayer uh, team all around the room, the elder right up front, the offering boxes in the back, all of which are ways for us to dialogue with the Lord and remind ourselves that God is sovereign over all. He is the one who gives us all that we have. But today, especially, I want to highlight the table of communion because it's at the table of communion that we are reminded of the price that Jesus paid for our sin. You see, Jesus, the perfect one, the sinless one, the one that was able to um, resist temptation through God's word, he knows what it's like for us to deal with temptation. And he went to the cross to pay for the price of our sin. He is the ultimate parachute against any temptation that we might deal with. He is the one who gets us through. He shed his blood. He gave his body for us. And so when we take the bread, being reminded of his body, and we dip it in the cross, being reminded of his blood, we are reminded once again every week that we are bathed in God's grace. That God looks at us and he sees us perfectly beautiful, righteous, good as his son is good. And so today, if you, if you feel any kind of shame by this message, if you feel convicted, if you feel that maybe this was a little harsh on you today, I pray that you would take a moment and accept the grace that Jesus has for you. That even wherever you're at, it doesn't matter how deep you are in the situation, that you would embrace the grace that Jesus has for you. There is no dark place God isn't willing to go. But we must be willing to admit that we need his help. And as we're going to sing a song over you, as you do all of these stations, listen to the words. I'm going to say them, and then Darius is going to sing them over you. It says, Lord, I need you. I confess. I confess that I need you. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You are the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour. I need you. You are my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, Lord, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, God, your grace is so much more. So take a moment before you get up. Confess to the Lord whatever you need to confess. And then come, feast at the table of grace. Remind yourself of God's love for you. Whenever you're ready. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and his work together. Thanks again.